Ahoy hoy. Ahoy hoy. And bienvenidos. That, uh, I, is that, I wonder how many people say ahoy ahoy not referencing The Simpsons. Oh, I hear it not pretty a lot. often. Mostly it's The Simpsons that they're yeah, referencing. Yeah, yeah, I imagine. You know what that's referencing? Uh-uh. That's referencing the first uh, transmission between Edison and Watson in some capacity. They said, ahoy, ahoy. Yeah, they picked up the phone and it was ahoy, hoy. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Oh No Not the podcast. Where we talk where about we Simpsons t- facts, pretty much. I mean, and, anything uh, Edison in life, related. Yeah, yeah, pretty much anything in life these days is just Simpsons references <laughs> with filler in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Dusty. I'm Rick. Hello. We're here on a on a Saturday afternoon recording. Yes. This is a rarity. Shaking it up, even though who knows when this will be posted. Yeah. yeah. Though uh, maybe today. Who knows when it'll know. be listened to. I got to get it out before the Oscar special. Otherwise, That's the backlog true. Mm-hmm. could leapfrog. Who knows? <laughs> Rick's in a hurry, so let's get started. Um, uh, clearly, I'm in a hurry yeah. by just like vamping yeah. with uh, Edison quotes or facts. Factoids. Factoids. Apparently, I have a trend now because last time, if you remember, Mr. Bob Smith that I covered, the comedian, uh-huh. he passed away from ALS. Oh. And my first person also passed away. Got a streak going. From ALS. Mm-hmm. Catherine Wolf died on February 7th, ALS, as I mentioned, at the age of 70. She was a psychologist who worked with IBM and helped develop voice recognition technology. Mm. Um, Alexa. Exactly. Now, give me. It uh, was hard, and, and I'll get into it. It was hard to directly trace. Uh-huh. Back to her, but that's pretty much why I'm covering her. There's, okay. there's two two main reasons. She was born uh, Catherine Deborah God Godyen uh, on May 25th, 1947. She graduated from Tufts University with a degree in psychology, from Brown with a doctorate in experimental psychology. Don't know what that means exactly. And finally, did post grad work messing at with your MIT. Brains. Exactly. <laughs> see what this does. Let's see what this does. Uh, during this time, this is an interesting factoid, speaking of factoids, uh, she met her future husband via a computer dating service in 1966. Wow. Something that was like an early version of the internet where it was like two computers talking to each other, something like that. Like terminals? Like two yeah. computer terminals? Okay, yeah. that's interesting. somehow there was some early primitive version of a dating service on those, and that's how they met. It's just, that's what, any type of communication device will be used for dating yeah, initially. Yeah, that's what it all comes down to. Yeah. Uh, everything is done for love. Uh, so her first job out of school was at Bell Labs to improve interaction between users and what was known as the picture phone, okay. which was the first like video conferencing thing, and early versions of cell phones. Uh-huh. Uh, she would then move on to IBM, where she'd do, stay for the rest of her career, where she would do research that led to advances in systems such as transferring speech into text and making banking transactions over the phone. Now, what she would do, she wasn't like an engineer or a coder. What she was, uh, was she would do research uh, that consisted of observing people in workplaces and getting better uh, better understanding of their actions and the way people use language. And the engineers would use her findings to better uh, the programming for their applications. It's like a privately funded linguist. Yes, she, and she was she was really into language. Okay. And, and she, like... Uh, she was almost like I like to think of her as like the Jane Goodall for like the business world. Okay, like she would just kind of go and observe. Yeah, uh, yuppies and nerds and mm-hmm. take notes. And then oh, I like, see you have no emotions. Yeah, Here, let <laughs> or the rhythms of their conversations, the kind of demands they had. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, in 1996, she began noticing the first signs of her illness. 
she was determined not to let it affect her work, and in doing so, ended up developing a new rating scale to judge how extreme someone was in the progress of their ALS. Because ALS is this degenerative nerve disease, mm-hmm. and people, there's a wide range, there's a spectrum of how it can affect people based on where they are in the, the development and just who they are. It affects everyone differently. So, uh, you know, there's no cure for ALS, but um, you can slow down the progression of it. So this new rating system that her and IBM, along with IBM, uh, helped rate people and then better uh, give them the technology uh, to help them treat their ALS. So in doing so, she, you know, normally ALS, when you get diagnosed, it's like two to five years lifespan once you get diagnosed. She lived for over 20 years. Oh, wow. And so some of the systems that she helped develop were, you know, an early version was like a, you know, because you slowly lose function of your different limbs, different function uh, systems. And Mm -hmm. so at one point she was like, uh, would look at a screen and she had like a light sensor on her forehead and she could like train her forehead to different places on a screen in order to start spelling things out. Oh, interesting. But then by the end of her life, she had, she couldn't even uh, move her neck. So she had a way of using just her eyebrow mm. to write. And she, towards the end of her life, she started writing books of poetry mm. entirely with using just her eyebrow. Crazy. And so she helped develop these systems. And she she had all these great quotes. Like, she was super positive. Like, at first, when she was diagnosed, she didn't want to accept it. She went and tried to get all these different opinions, and eventually she accepted Once she accepted the diagnosis, she was like, all right, well, I'm not going to let this keep me down. Uh, made me think of, because also... My partner is a psychologist who also loves poetry. Mm-hmm. So it made me think of her. And, you know, as we like to feature people who have affected our lives we may not know about. Again, I don't know the extent exactly how her research like led to Siri or Alexa mm-hmm. or that. But obviously she broke helped break grounds in speech analytics and speak recognition. So when Skynet. Uh, yep. Takes over mm-hmm. and Partly her fault. Uh, it'll be. Yeah, mostly her fault. You could trace it back to her. So, oh, no, <laughs> not Catherine Wolf. Cool. My first person today is a fellow by the name of Richard E. Taylor. Uh, We'll get into his importance. He died uh, February 22nd at the age of 88. I could not find a cause, which is par for the course for that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But so let's get into it. He was born November 2nd, 1929 in Alberta, Canada. Um, As a kid, he wanted to be a surgeon, but he lost part of his forefinger and middle finger after a chemistry experiment in his basement lab. No details on what I got nothing else. That was it. But it was kind of like, I mean, he's a scientist. It was kind of like, oh, this is my calling. And also, I can't be a surgeon because my fingers are no longer there. Right. Um, He studied at the University of Alberta. Uh, He applied for a graduate program at UC Berkeley, but was rejected. That'll come back to haunt them, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, But he was accepted to Stanford to join their new high-energy physics laboratory. Uh, And that's where basically his relevance to the greater society comes in. Um, In 1960s, let me let me give you a little history lesson of particle physics. <laughs> Should I tell you how long <laughs> it was? Um, I'll just give you a snapshot of what it was like in the 1960s. So in the 1960s, um, everyone has a sense that there's protons and neutrons, right? And mm-hmm. that they interacted with each other, uh, and they kind of knew that, but they didn't. But there was this whole like mess in between that just like all the equations uh, weren't really adding up. 
despite having these protons and neutrons and everyone had like a, a bunch of different theories about like oh no it's this or no it's this this is what we're missing this is what we're missing but they couldn't really figure out so there was no way of proving this there stuff. was no it way was of, all theory right much. it was all theory um and so Taylor and this group at Stanford was like, all right, let's just smash these two things together and see what happens. <laughs> and, so, and he lost more fingers. Yeah. <laughs> um, may, it might not have been that, that crude. I'm sure there's like some more science behind it. But they were the first people. Uh, so th- he had the team. Uh, he's part of this team. He said that later uh, there were like over a thousand people that were included in this team. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from scientists to engineers uh, to everything in between. And they developed uh, what was called the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center which was one of the largest atom smashers at the time. Uh, it was two stories tall, and it was kind of a precursor to any of these huge, like, hadron collider type things mm-hmm. that are going on. So it was kind of like the first one that was doing that type of thing. Um, and so they would take protons, they would smash the electrons against them, and they would just study the effects of those type of things. Man, that type of thing. I never understood, like, especially, like, you know, learning about the Manhattan Project and all that. Like, I never understood how they could properly estimate how much resistance they need how much Mm. protection they need like how do they even know like sure that lead wall will protect like how did they calculate some type of math i think oh okay that makes sense math that or just luck yeah yeah just (laughs) guess guesstimates and so they were doing these experiments the experiments like proved uh all sorts of stuff but there was like one really main thing um they they smashed the protons and the electrons um, and when that happened, after the colliding, they they discovered that there were like too many particles coming off of it. So um, almost like something had broken off of the proton, mm-hmm. which at that point was kind of this weird thing because uh, the idea was that the protons and the electrons were kind of this uh, the elementary or yeah, an elementary character at the time. Like there was nothing smaller than them according to science at the time. Gotcha. And so it's kind of like, well, what's going on if there's stuff breaking off of them? Um, and the effect showed that instead of being like, uh, you know, these solid balls that people thought they were, not solid, but, you know, these things, uh, they were more like, uh, the quote was more like jam with seeds embedded in them. So when they hit... <laughs> Way to bring it down to our level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so when they hit, the seeds dislodged, and all of a sudden you have this new, like, more elementary uh, thing to the system that you can throw into the equations and all of a sudden the equations start making sense. Mm. And so those small things that were the, the seeds and the jam uh, were what were called quarks. Uh, and this was huge because it brought all these theories like to work. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the prominent theorist who was behind that was a guy by the name of Murray Gell Mann. Uh, and he had like predicted quarks before, and so they already had a name for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he got the name from a line from Finnegan's Wake. But because of that, then he it's kind of like, oh, he was right because his his theory proved out. Um, and so they kept that was kind of the big thing. Like they kept on studying from that. It became this like huge uh, development into what would become like quantum physics. Mm-hmm. Um, him and his team won a Nobel Prize for it in nineteen. I saw nineteen ninety 1990 and nineteen ninety six. So I wasn't sure which one. And I didn't do any more research with that. I wonder so, if it's like uh, in tra- or not. Like, what's uh, where you can't get tried for the same thing twice? Can you can you win a Nobel? Oh, double like yeah. Jeopardy. Yeah. Can you can I'm you? Sh- I don't can know. You maybe win a Nobel Prize for the same thing twice. It depends. Yeah. Like, we it, just realized this is really awesome. Depends so. on if you got a new movie coming <laughs> out that year. Another million dollars. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty much it. That's all I got. Uh, so back then, probably responsible for opening up some wormhole to uh, kind of justify where we're at now. 
Awesome. And that is it. So, oh no, not Richard E. Taylor. Man, I'm starting off with some smart people. <laughs> this next guy, not as smart, not a doctorate. <laughs> Actually, not. Uh, <laughs> it's a rough start. <laughs> did not have that much education. Actually, uh, I'll get into why this guy uh, is important to me. So, I'll kind of run through his life kind of quickly. Uh, his name's Lewis Gilbert, died on February 23rd at the age of 97, no cause of death given. Uh, he was a British director whose most famous films were he did three Bond films. Okay. Which Bonds? We'll get into that. Oh. So, a little, a little suspense. <laughs> uh, he was born on March 6, 1920 in London. Both of his parents were traveling entertainers who spent most, uh, and because of this, he spent most of his youth watching them perform. By the time he was five, he had been become part of his family's act. Um, as a teenager, he became acting and uh, began acting in films. And before the age of 20, realized that he wanted to be behind the camera, not in front of it. So he had his first big break uh, as assistant director for Alfred Hitchcock in a film I've never heard of. Not that I'm super well-versed in Hitchcock, but 1939 is Jamaica Inn. Sure. One of the, it's supposed to be one of the worst. I've never saw it. It's supposed to be like <laughs> one of his worst movies. Just... It's like a Charles Lawton mm. was in it. I think it's his own, like the only Lawton. movie that he was in with Hitchcock. Mm. Um, and yeah, it's supposed to be like his worst movie. Yeah, well, this guy... Was the assistant mm. director for that. <laughs> uh, when the war broke out, he joined the Royal Air Force Film Unit, uh, and by the end of the world war, he had been transferred to a film unit under U.S. Army uh, Air Force and was working under the American film director William uh, Keeley, who famously did like the Robin Hood movie with uh, yeah. uh, Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn, uh-huh. exactly. So, uh, kind of w- under this guy, this guy kind of let him do whatever he wanted. Would just like give him assignments, and he could go off and film whatever he wanted. Uh, so then because of this, the next decade, so for the th- rest of the 40s into the 50s, he kind of made a name for himself making films about true stories about the war. Okay. So, you know, in the 50s into the 60s, these were pretty profitable and were pretty cheap to make. So in 1966, he was offered the chance to direct Alfie, starring Michael Caine, which I've never seen Alfie. I've never Have seen you? No. Apparently, like, I knew it was like, you know, swinging 60s, hey, he's like a womanizer, but apparently it, like... From what I was reading, it also like shows some of the like negative sides of like casual sex. Mm. Like it's got kind of a dark side to yeah. it. Well, so tough, that tough film won the uh, jury prize at Cannes, the Nobel and, Prize, and the Nobel Prize <laughs> at Cannes, and uh, was nominated for five Oscars. So on the success of that, he started to develop the film adaptation of the musical Oliver, which was like this passion project. But he had to bow out of it because of budgetary reasons, like. The studio only wanted to spend $2 million. He's like, well, we need $7 million. So eventually he either left or got kicked out. And then he was persuaded by the producers to direct the fifth Bond film, You Only Live Twice, in 1967, which was Connery's last film before he left for His Majesty's Secret Service. Then he came back. I got to say, I'm not a big Bond guy. They all kind of run together. I've like, I think I've seen... One, I think I've seen Dr. No, the first one. I think that's the only Sean Connery one I've seen. Mm. I've seen, weirdly, all of the Roger Moore ones. So, coming back to it, uh, he then came back. uh, And actually, weird. here's a weird factoid. You Only Live Twice was written by Roald Dahl. Oh, I know. Uh, So, that was 67. He returned to the series in 1977's The Spy Who Loved Me and 1979's Moonraker. Uh, I guess Moonraker, I think I know. So, I'll table that. Okay. Come back to why. This is why this guy... Is important to me. So after the Bond series, he left the Bond series for the second time. He didn't really have much mainstream success. He kept making movies, but I went through the list and I hadn't really heard of any of them. Uh, His last one was this movie called Before You Go in 2002, which is one of those like 
bunch of older people that got to do things before they die. Oh. You know, bucket list. Bucket list. Thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what so are you doing? It, <laughs> you know, living life to the fullest. Uh, he wrote an autobiography in 2010 that his entire, the title is so long. It's called All of My Flashbacks, colon, The Autobiography of Lewis Gilbert's 60 Years as a Film Director. Pretty good. So the reason why I was like, I got to feature this guy is because uh, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker, which, again, I'm not a big Bond guy, but those are the two movies with Jaws. Oh, okay. Richard Keel with yeah. the metal mouth. Sure. I remember seeing these two movies back to back as a kid. I must have been seven or eight. And it was the first time that I think, looking back on it, that I actively like crit- like took a critical role or, mm. or a critical view of a film. Like both of them, I could not make heads or tails out of what was going on in these movies. I remember being like, wait, what happened to his love interest from the last movie? Uh. I like, knew that one <laughs> came out. I knew Moonraker came out. And then I was like, yeah. now they're in space like i just did not i could not comprehend what was going on in these movies that's amazing but kind of loved it at the same time uh-huh. so like looking back on my life that was like the first time where i like my mind was like oh i should be analyzing what is happening here instead of just being like oh this is entertainment right so i i have lewis gilbert to thank for me being i guess so you know why are his teeth like that well i couldn't make heads <laughs> jaws Anyway, so, oh no, not Lewis Gilbert. Cool. Um, are you a Bond guy? I've all? seen, I don't know how many there are. I've probably seen more than 15, but again, just kind of like on. I, like, I, I don't remember much yeah, of them. I just, I, even as a kid, I remember watching them and being like, the, the, like, the roles of women in these are terrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, totally. I, I do love A View to Kill. The the last Roger Moore one that was made in like eighty five, where it's in San Francisco with Christopher Walken as the villain and Grace Jones as the secondary villain. Oh, I never saw that. Oh, it's terrible, but it's hilariously (laughs) terrible. And like Roger Moore is way too old to still be James Bond. Uh Uh, Yeah, so like I can appreciate James Bond as like this is silly and over the top, which is probably why I like Roger Moore. Uh But yeah, I just I think it's like this weird. I don't understand why James Bond still exists. I hope it goes on for another hundred years because yeah. it, 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 I think it's a weird like cultural artifact. In a, well, in even a like I way. saw, I think Skyfall was the last one I saw, and even then, like they, there's a woman who just is used as like a sex symbol, and then they like shoot her in the head. Like mm-hmm. it's still a role of women. I just yeah. can't, I can't look back past that. It's kind of a weird like. Uh, <laughs> we should probably cut a lot of this, yeah. <laughs> but in. Um, uh, the Elliot this is why Gould. people listen to this. Yeah, what's well, the for Elliot Gould, Robert Altman? Lo- it's your favorite movie. A yeah. Long goodbye. What's it called? Long goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> it's your favorite. A long goodbye. So it's kind of like I was, <laughs> I was thinking for my fantasy baseball to be uh uh long, the Longoria goodbye. Oh, that's but I don't know good. if that's too. No, that's good. Too deep of. A I think cut. it's great. Yeah. yeah? Okay. Yeah. Maybe I'll go with it. Anyway. Uh, but so that the whole idea when when he made that movie was kind of like um, and I'm blanking on the guy's name. Uh, Philip Marlowe. So oh, Philip Marlowe yeah. is like a 1920s character, but he had just shifted him into the, like the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like this like time out of place thing, which is what it feels like the Bond movies are. Like they have to adapt to like new technology and new like but it feels, norms. Yeah, but it feels like they adapt to new technology, but this it's this this like archaic figure that's still kind of lumbering through the right. world now where before he was like the coolest guy ever. And maybe just because the last couple Daniel Craig ones that I saw, he's so even he's over the role, like he doesn't mm-hmm. want to do it. Yeah, 
It seems like no one wants to do it. It just keeps happening. No, yeah, you're kind of stuck with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's and yeah, it's like a curse. Two, yeah. It's a curse. Yeah. Which is that which is why I'm I I think I'm okay with them continuing to make them and I will never watch any more of them and I don't care. But I'm just like I like the idea of Bond movies until like the Yeah, year and 20, I like I went back and looked cuz I was I was like who else is dr- I mean, I know like uh, I like Sam Mendes. Yeah, who's a freaking hack. But like, <laughs> looking through and Mark Foster, who's another hack. Like, looking back through all these directors, none of them are good directors. Right. Yeah. There hasn't been a single really good director. Like, there was one guy that's like ah, John Glenn, something like that. One guy that like made all the rest of the Roger Moore ones. Mm-hmm. That like didn't make anything else good. Yeah. And the one who like all of them are bad directors. They're Bad movies. Yep. I, don't, I mean, again, you can appreciate them for campiness and like kind of like a, a like a timestamp. Mm-hmm. That's what I think they are. Yeah, a timestamp. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh no, not the James Bond franchise. <laughs> Welcome to Bond Talk. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I will close out this week with a fellow by the name of Barry Crimmins. Crimmins? I think it's Crimmins. I'm pretty sure it's Crimmins. Got to do your research. Man. I know. Um. He died at the age of 64, uh, last week after being diagnosed with cancer in January. Uh, his wife said that he passed, passed away pe- peacefully and that, quote, he would want everyone to know that he cared deeply about mankind and wants you to carry on the good fight. So let's get into what that fight is. Uh, he was born July 3rd, 1953 in Kingston, New York, um, in a place called Skaneateal. Ease? Oh, man. Synecdoche. No, not that. <laughs> Skinny nettles. I don't know. Something like that. You could look it up. But a joke of his... Stinging nettles? Uh, Skinettles. I think it's skinettles. All right. Uh, Skinettles. Let's say skinettles. Uh, a joke of his, which will give you kind of like a sense of his style, was that uh, skinettles is an Indian word that means beautiful lake surrounded by fascists. <laughs> so that's sort of what is glad they have a word for that. Yeah. Um, he was raised Roman Catholic. Uh, he moved to Boston in the 1970s to perform stand up. Uh, and he was on the rise sort of in his career in the 80s as Reagan came to power. And that was seemingly this big codifying moment from his for his point of view in brand of comedy. Um, this is from the New York Times obituary. Uh, this is a joke that he told uh, our international policies under Reagan are great. Central Americans' policy is tremendous. If people hungry, if people are hungry, kill them. So that's kind of his. That makes sense. That's kind of his thing. Yeah. Um, he founded two comedy clubs in Boston, uh, the Ding Ho and Stitches. And oh, from, I've heard of Stitches. Yeah, Stitches is like a pretty well-known one. I don't know if the Ding Ho is still around. Um, but during that time, he kind of became this like lead figure. Uh, I forget. I think I forget who said it was. I think it was Dana Gould might have said this. Like he was kind of the president of the Boston comedy scene. Like, even though he wasn't, like, one of the stars during that era, he was, like, the person who kind of controlled the era. Did Danigal say this while a female comedian was talking? This, Did he just say it over her? This is a... That's a very inside yeah, yeah. type thing. Yeah. Uh, so he helped put uh, people such as Paula Poundstone, Bobcat Goldthwait... Goldthwait? Goldthwait. All right. Um, and Stephen Wright onto the scene. Uh, and as he was doing that, he built his own career. He opened for Jackson Brown in 1988. He toured with Billy Bragg, which makes political sense. Yep. Um, and then uh, this is from the New York Times obituary. 
Uh, as the 1980s gave way to the 1990s, friends noticed that Crimmins' act, stage act was growing less funny and more harsh, full of ranting and badgering audience members as if he was wrestling with some inner demons. So he went the Lenny Bruce route. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> um, but then people point to his show uh, in May of 1992 at Stitches as kind of his defining moments. He had the show where he revealed that he had been raped as a child by a male babysitter, um, and it became this big thing. The Boston Globe uh, that was there or reviewed it or something said it was, quote, the most highly charged and soul-bearing monologue ever staged in one of the city's comedy clubs. Um, and so he kind of morphed after that from a comedian who had an activist bent to an activist who would do comedy here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became an outspoken opponent of child porn and the internet places that enabled it. Um, which back then was like AOL. That was like in the early to yeah, mid nineties. So it was like AOL. Child porn, yeah. Child porn chat rooms and stuff. So, uh, in 1995, he testified before the Senate judiciary committee against AOL, calling it a key link in the network of child porn traffickers. And that is really, I mean, that, that whole era is when the crackdown started happening with AOL mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, and he, yeah, he was an activist for the rest of his life. He uh, was awarded the Courage of Conscious Award by Howard Zinn. And in 2004, he wrote the book Never Shake Hands with a War Criminal, which kind of looks at the reactionary U.S. policies in the wake of 9-11. He was a correspondent for Air America Radio. Do you remember that at all? Okay. Um, Did you listen to that at all? Oh, every morning. Really? Yeah, yeah. The the morning show in San Francisco was Willie Brown and... um, What's that really awful comedian with the gravelly <laughs> voice? Well, dearest. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I listen to it every morning. Yeah, yeah. There was the, uh, I think, what did we have? We what had the like, Sam Cedar show. Yeah, but Sam Cedar and like Mark Maron was on it or and something. And Janine Garofalo right, had a yeah. show too. Uh-huh. Yeah. Garofalo did. Yeah, yeah. No, I listened to it like crazy. For the year it was on? Yeah, it was on for a few years. I think Al, Al Franken had a show, right? Sounds right, yeah. probably. Uh, and so that was, that was kind of, I mean, he did stand up right up until the end. Uh, I oh, and there's also a documentary there that uh, is well known about his life by Bobcat Goldthwait called "Call Me Lucky," which neither of us have seen, I believe. Nope. Uh, I'm gonna leave you with a clip from Barry Crimmins, uh, and this is from a Conan episode uh, last or in 2000 during the 2016 election. So this is about Trump and uh, the media. Do you get frustrated? You get frustrated with the media. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think we all do. Yeah. I'm watching CNN during the insurrection in Ferguson and they put up one of those dildoic polls they do. Uh, The the question was, uh, is racism getting better in America? And so I tweeted him right back and said, oh, yeah, it's at the top of its game. (laughs) (laughs) So as as most of the listeners are probably friends with us on Facebook. (laughs) Yeah. Know that, you know, I do when people pass away, I do the oh, no, not. And then their name, Mm -hmm. our friend Chris Stevens posted this guy and if i don't do it in a timely fashion i get hit up by like yeah dozens of people two or three people uh who are angry about things and so chris posted this on and i had never heard of this guy and like at first i'm like oh maybe i just don't know i know him i like read up on him like literally have never heard his name Mm -hmm. never heard his voice never heard his jokes i had no idea this guy existed and i'm a pretty big comedy fan and i was kind of shocked that i had never heard of this guy I think if you listen to Mark the Mark Maron, I do enough. Well, yeah, 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 maybe it was just like a blind spot in my comedy world, but seemed like a very important, cool guy. Yeah, Uh, I'll wrap. Oh, that's it. Oh no, no. Oh no, no. (laughs) Oh no, 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 not Barry Crimmins. (laughs) 
Uh, just for the fact that he took down AOL. He right. Yeah. Deserves we don't get those days. discs anymore. Yeah. Um, my coasters. That's it. That's all I have. Um, so next week is our, uh, our biggest night. Biggest night of the year is Sunday. Yes. It's Oscar. What Oscar. are you wearing? Uh, I will be working. Oh. I just found out I'll be working. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I'm going to go on a work trip. I plan my work trip around being able to get to my hotel in time to watch the Oscars. Mm. And now I found out I have to work from, from five to six on some. Anyway. Well, it doesn't matter because the best movie of the year isn't even up for the, the, the best movie uh, award. Man, I was going to try and think of a funny joke. Yeah, everybody wants some. Yeah, <laughs> every year. Um, but if there's, if you see or hear of any, uh, what we do is during the um, in memoriam section, mm-hmm. they will have this sad little montage, and Alicia Keys will sing a song or something, and inevitably they will miss very important people. Yes. Uh, so we're gonna do a show next week. As we do every year, we've done for the past 20 years, <laughs> uh, we will feature a uh, rapid-fire succession of all the people that they missed yes. in the in-memoriam, because we need to give credit so our dozens of listeners mm-hmm. will care. And if you are a listener that notices someone uh, that is not being that was not represented well mm-hmm. in the in-memoriam, please let us know. Yeah, email us at ononotpodcast at gmail.com or text Rick at... Uh, 310-467-0608. That's 310-467-0608. Or uh, follow us on Twitter at... Oh No Not R.I.P. At Oh No Not R.I.P. Oh No No Trip. Uh, until, just look at me. Yeah. yeah, just look us up. Until, or, you know, LinkedIn. You can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, until then, I hope I don't see any of it. Yeah.